0: Hey, and welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I'm your host, Jason Nichols. I'm here with my colleague and friend, Vince Colonnese. And today we've got a lot to talk about, a lot on tap, international, domestic, and we'll try to get to as much as we can. Uh, so I'm gonna turn it over to my friend, Vince.
1: All right, thanks, Jason. And first and foremost, as we are speaking, uh, we know that somewhere you know, in Geneva right now, either Joe Biden is now done speaking to Vladimir Putin or he's in the midst of doing that. Uh, the two world leaders have been meeting this morning. And Jason, there was like all of this anticipation ahead of the meeting. What was it going to look like? And I, uh, I, I guess with you this morning, I just want to assess sort of what are the stakes of a meeting like this? How important is it actually? Are we overestimating its importance or, or even underestimating for that matter? Uh, and You know, what do you want to see Joe Biden accomplish in a meeting like this? I guess I'll start there as a baseline and then we can get to the big picture stuff about, um, you know, about whether or not um, the United what kind of posture the U.S. should have towards Russia.
0: Well, so I truly believe that we are expecting probably too much from this one meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Joe Biden is a skilled politician. He's been around forever. He's been in this kind of situation. He's no stranger to these kinds of meetings. Uh, The early reports are that he looks relaxed. Um, I I think that we're expecting some sort of bombshell to come out. And what we're going to get is, hey, we had a meeting. We're going to have more meetings. Um, I think generally what we want is for them to discuss you know, cybersecurity, for them you know, to keep oh, yeah. people on their end accountable for hacking, for them, uh, or to extradite some of their criminals here. Uh, we need to uh, talk to them probably uh, about Syria. Like There, there are many kind of geopolitical things that we need to discuss with Russia, including our own elections and election hacking and, and things that they may have been involved in, or any kind of sabotage to our democratic process. Um, We need to talk about human rights with uh, Vladimir Putin and and some of the things that he's alleged to have done. There are a lot of things that are on tap. And there there are a lot of stakes, I think, in the relationship between uh, the United States, Russia, and China is not there. But I think those are the three countries That, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, you know, you've got other countries that are important, Iran and and, um, North Korea and everything. But the United States and Russia, uh, you know, going back to the Cold War have always been two of the most important nations on the planet. And it has implications for not only those two countries, but for the entire world.
1: So Um, what do you what do you think is like actually going on behind the scenes, behind closed doors between these two guys? Because. Like, remember, it was just a couple months ago, Joe Biden was asked whether or not he thought Vladimir Putin is a killer. And he said, yes, he said, yes, I think he's a killer, he said in an interview. And then this past week um, in his uh, at a NATO press conference, he was asked about that. Does he still believe that? And he dodged the question on the killer part. And then he said things. He was very complimentary of Putin. He definitely softened his language tremendously ahead of this meeting. What do you do you think do you kind of envision Joe Biden is like talking tough in a meeting like this? Or do you expect that he's going to play pretty nice with Vladimir Putin? Uh,
0: I think there's going to be a mixture of both. Uh, They're going to be meeting for several hours. So I I think there's going to be some tough talk, uh, some tough posturing. But I also think that there's going to be, you know, some friendly exchange. You know, basically, they're going to play political gamesmanship. Um, and this is one thing, you know, I, I think is so interesting just generally. And everyone wants a, an experienced doctor. Everyone wants an experienced mechanic. Yeah. Everyone wants an experienced electrician. But for some reason, people don't want an experienced politician. You know? mm. And I, And I think there are times where that is the right approach we do want somebody who's not connected who's not part of you know that uh that class of politicians who are career politicians but there are times where having an experienced politician flanked by experienced diplomats and others on the on the uh, international stage where i think that actually helps and i think that actually works
1: right Uh, if I would agree if, if the outcomes are good, I would totally agree with you. But like if and, and to use your analogy, if the doctors we were talking about were routinely killing their patients, we'd say, you know, maybe we should go in a different direction because these doctors are not serving us well. All these people keep dying on the operating table. Uh, just I think there's a problem here. Um, that's how I feel, especially about America's diplomacy over the last few decades. You know, it's like, for instance, I realize that sort of the very obvious comparison that's implicit in the statement you were just talking about is between Trump and Biden, right? Because these are the two most direct presidents we can think about having interfaced with Putin recently and interfaced with the rest of the planet for that matter. And when you say like, well, it's important to have an experienced politician for some some of these things, especially international diplomacy. It's important that we've got diplomats who are steeped in all of this and understand diplomacy who are involved in this. I, I think that's right to an extent. Because, for instance, experienced diplomacy didn't actually yield the NATO spending that we needed in order to have the other member nations satisfy their obligations. That was just that was a gut thing. Trump did. And and the people and some of the people around him who were for that, who said enough, you have to pay your obligations and demanded it of NATO and actually was able to get higher defense spending out of those countries um, and within a break from the typical sort of like, okay, now nah, we'll cover it, where the United States is diplomatic to a fault, where it sort of backs off on uh, in for making sure that other countries meet their obligations. Those types of things, you know that 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 was a difference. You know, with Russia in particular, you know, you had um, the incursion into Crimea in 2014 sure. by into Ukraine by Russia. And at that point, the Ukrainians were begging for military assistance from the United States. And the diplomatic response, or at least in President Obama's eyes, was don't give it to them. Don't give them the anti-tank weapons. Um, and then Trump comes into office and Trump decided to break that all apart. He decided, yes, I'm giving Ukraine the anti-tank weapons as a counterbalance to Russia. Now, you can challenge the wisdom of that if you want. But like, clearly, you had a guy come in who had no diplomatic touch. This is Donald Trump. The deals that he was involved in were like typically real estate deals not big international ones and he just thought he thought about things differently and you you don't have to like trump i guess but maybe it is helpful to have a different perspective come in from time to time to shake things up and it could actually yield good results for us
0: well i definitely think that making the uh the other nato countries uh live up to their obligations um i think was was a good thing the the issue that I think we were headed down a road where there may not be a NATO. Um, I think, it, you know, had we gone down the same diplomatic path. Also, when, we, when you talk about the State Department in terms of um, morale, I can just tell you morale in the State Department, you know, the people that I've, I've known in, in the State Department, morale was at an all-time low. There were fewer people of color in the State Department uh, than, you know, generations than it had been for generations um, there were some some real serious errors where a lot of people felt like what are we doing <laughs> you know what I mean like I understand operating you know on someone's gut but you know there are times when you know with with diplomacy you need some sort of process you need a clear vision right. one of the things that I think is great about any organization um, is when the leader has a clear vision not just on-the-spot decisions for everything that goes on. Uh, it makes it much easier to do your job. Um, That's And, true. and you are correct that Obama, in many cases, uh, I think, played it very safe because he didn't want to escalate tensions with Russia, uh, with somebody like Vladimir Putin, who I think at the time, and even now, I think people saw it as a kind of a loose cannon. Um, and so, you know, for a while he stayed out of Syria, you know, didn't want to get involved in there because, you know, he, he was like, we don't need World War Three, and we we're coming out of two, you know, long-term wars that were unjustified. That would have been incredibly unpopular. And you and I would be sitting here talking about how Obama's the devil if we did end up in a war with Russia, um, and there'd be a whole lot of you know a whole lot of dead people, too. So I understand his his uh, hesitancy to escalate things with Russia. Trump went in and bombed Syria. Yeah, now, part of that, I think, is because of the relationship that trump, the personal relationship that Trump had with Vladimir Putin. I think he he could trust the fact that Vladimir Putin was not going to, you know, escalate things with him uh, when they have a friendly relationship. And again, I don't think the bombing of Syria, which I do not think was a good thing, you know, as as people have pointed out, uh, you know, I'm not always the friendliest person to to Donald Trump. But I really don't think that Donald Trump made that decision. I, I really believe that was the war hawks around Donald Trump um, that said, bomb Syria. And Obama also did not help uh, the Ukrainians. Maybe, Trump, you know. Trump said, let's help the Ukrainians, but you got to do this for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think there's, a, um, you know, there, there were troubling things that, you know, on both ends. I think Obama played it too safe. I think Trump sometimes didn't have a process for what he was doing.
1: So, regarding the bombing of Syria, I mean, whatever, whatever the decision making process was, tr- Trump ended up not being grumpy about that at all. He was bragging in public about enforcing Obama's red line because once Syria crossed that red line uh, in the use of chemical weapons, and then the Trump administration uh, eventually uh, bombed Syria, that was considered to be enforcing Obama's red line, right? So, tr- so Trump took some ownership of it, regardless of how it, it got to him. You know, you made a point a moment ago about how there were people within the state department who were grumpy during the trump years and that morale was lower and I can I get that that seems consistent with what we saw a lot in the federal government there was this um, this sense within the government itself that uh, they knew better than Trump so therefore they felt like they didn't either didn't want to do the things that he wanted to pursue so they would do what they can to subvert those things or they would quit you know public service like you're talking about they would they would abandon it because they they didn't like him but i think what's gotten what's happened in washington and this is not a partisan point i think this is just this should apply to both parties is that you have this deeply entrenched administrative state in some form of it what we we refer to as the deep state when we talk about the intelligence community but this administrative state that feels like okay it doesn't really matter who's in charge like remember like who who the smart people are like who the people who know what's actually going on are and we're going to call the shots and it is a good check on them when the pre- when the person that we elected says no i'm going to do something else i'm going to i'm going to change my mind i'll give you an example that just happened this past week so um, and by the way i don't think this was a wise decision but it's definitely his decision to make we just found out that the state department and all of the diplomats were telling joe biden and the white house to maintain the sanctions on the nord stream 2 pipeline connecting russia to germany designed to circumvent Ukraine right and to diminish Ukraine's power and to make Germany more dependent on Russian energy. So the United States under the Trump administration had a suite of sanctions on that. And the Biden State Department according to the Washington Post wanted to keep those sanctions thought those those were a very good idea that you didn't want to further empower Russia that whatever sort of grumpiness that Germany would have about that would be worth it they would stay in our corner anyway and that this is to the benefit ultimately I'm not sure this is the State Department's rationale, but this was the the benefit of the United States, because we can continue to export American energy. We're not empowering Russia. The greatest thing that we can do to actually knock back Russia is to become more and more energy independent and become more of an exporter of energy because that diminishes their economic power in the globe. Um, So Biden overruled all that. So this is just kind of the point that I'm making, which is like he's entitled to do it, to do that because he was elected. And therefore, he can push back on the people, the experts and the diplomats around him. I happen to think in this case, the diplomats were right. They should have kept the sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But that's a good example of where, okay, that guy's elected. He gets to make the choice whether it's good or bad.
0: Yeah, I don't think anybody's uh, saying that Trump didn't get to make the final decision. I think the the issue was that and I I, the only thing that I would disagree with you on, on what you said is this idea that people in the State Department, and I, I can't speak for every part of the federal government, but I, I think that there are many in many elements of the federal government who were just doing what I said earlier. Like, what's the plan? What's the process? Who's in charge? Like, you know, you, you put Gordon Sondland in like certain positions and, you know, you're overlooking some of the career people. You say they're mm-hmm. part of the deep state, you know, and and I can tell you, Uh, the people that I know in the State Department are about as nonpartisan as it gets. Like, you're you're right about the fact that, I don't know if that's called the deep state, but the fact that they're like, okay, uh, whoever's in charge, we're going to do our jobs. That's what a lot of career diplomats are all about. Like, you know, political appointees are different. They are devoted to the person who appointed them. But career diplomats, work through Republican administrations, they work through Democratic administrations. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people who have been in there for decades, they were there under, uh, you know, at least under, you know, some of them under Clinton, under right. Bush, W. Bush that is, and under Obama. And they were like, all right, well, here we're under Trump. And they're like, no matter what, we're gonna do the work of the United States of America. But then they weren't getting a plan. You know what I mean? Like, I think yeah, that, that was the I, complaint that I heard. Not like I told you, these people are non-partisan. They really don't care about partisan politics. That's okay, let me ask you a point.
1: question then about that. So I, I understand the point you're making. And, um and I, honestly, when when you say that You know, people wanted to work in the interest of America that is that is the goal, but the way that we you do that is through the elected officials vision so you're right in assessing that in any organization if the elected official the guy at the top can't communicate his vision well among his agencies, for instance, or whatever organization you lead, that's bad that's bad for an organization so I, I accept that point for sure, but on the other side don't you think that like there is a bit of a behemoth of an administrative state where you sort of have like faceless bureaucrats that who are career officials who have an extraordinary amount of power we vested these agencies with a tremendous amount of regulatory power that's basically free from congress having to pass laws things like this and what they do is through the years regardless of who's president they develop their own sense of how things should be and and they try and work towards that being the the achievement they stand up these these sections in their offices they become more and more powerful there's always like this standing bureaucracy in washington that routinely pursues a- an end game regardless of who's in office right and like don't you think that's the case i mean like you could use like the defense department as a good example of that i mean yeah there is a commander-in-chief and yes he has a different vision but there is ultimately internally there's this momentum that continues regardless of who's in office
0: and i and I think that in many ways, so I think there are issues with having a a large administrative state absolutely. um I also think that there are certain things that are good in order to have like you know the United States has a you know that there's continuity in our in our worldview and in our pursuits um and it doesn't go based on the whims and we don't have to reinvent the wheel or reinvent the United States every four to eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that having that in things when we're talking about DoD you know when we're talking yes. about defending our country uh, like having that kind of continuity, there are pluses to to that um and so I, I'm not necessarily uh, gonna say the administrative state is a well, terrible thing.
1: Let I'm me give even... you, let me give you a real-world example. Then maybe that maybe this is a good way to play it. So I agree with you. Continuity obviously matters. Like you can't have like a new president shows up and every career is replaced. Uh, in fact, the United States used to be like that um, up until uh, civil service reform in the late uh, uh, 1800s. You know, guys like Teddy Roosevelt were leading the charge on this, and the point was like it can't just be a spoils system. It can't be that like every prisoner that hustled to vote for you is all of a sudden a part of the post office like you can't do that so we've got to come up with a way to say okay we have some permanent bureaucracy and that these career officials continue to be there and that you can't just reward government jobs on the basis of politics um unfortunately we still have a lot of that going on there's still a big spoil system going on but they tried to correct for it Uh, and a recent example i think that comes to mind is the fact that remember we had and you and i talked about this a little bit but um the money that was going into this Wuhan Institute of Virology. And we're still lots of questions still about what US taxpayer money was doing there and what it was funding and whether or not it ultimately played a role in potentially funding the pandemic that we just endured, right? And the reason that that could occur was because there was creative budgeting going on within the National Institutes of Health. There was this supposed moratorium on that kind of research, gain of function research, yet they created this like creative workaround where they could call it something different, yet they were still funding things that enhance the the infectiousness of viruses. And do you really think that like if Donald Trump knew about that funding and how Anthony Fauci and company were, were, were created a workaround in order to continue to fund a lab in China where they work on dangerous viruses, do you think Trump would have like continued to be like, oh, that's a good idea. Like we should do that. No, definitely not. I mean, there's a reason they did it in this way. It was subversive, and I and I, my fear is, uh, Jason Nichols, is that is that there's a lot of that going on. That that's like you know, look, if we do something in a certain way, it'll attract the notice of the politicians, of the guys who are in charge, the electeds. Let's let's not do that. Let's there's another way to do this, and that's not good. I just don't think that's good for a country, and not one like ours.
0: So uh, first of all, uh, you know. It always wakes me up when you when you address me by my first and last name. You know?
1: <laughs> I just want to remind everyone who you are. That's all. It's right, a, it's right. a radio tick. I, every so often, like if I'm speaking to a guest, I'll say their full name so people, if they just tuned in, they know. But I guess okay. if you've been listening the whole time, you know who Jason Nichols is. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. My friend Jason. Well,
0: well Vince Colonies. I will say <laughs> that um, I, I think that there there are – you know, I, I don't want to go we, – we've talked about the, the Anthony Fauci thing, and yeah. I do think – that there are a lot of people with FDS, you know, uh, Fauci derangement syndrome. Um,
1: <laughs> Did you find that?
0: No, I, I saw it on Twitter. So You're trying that out, okay, okay. You know I, mean? I really wish I could take, take credit for that. But um, I do think that, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, I, I think that there, there are a lot of, you know, good points that you, that you made, but I also think that that is the responsibility on some level of oversight. And there are people, this is why we have 75 million committees uh, in, um, excuse me, in Congress. Yes. This is why, you know, you have rules that protect whistleblowers. This is why all these things, you know, and, and you know, I guess people on the right will call them leakers, but I would say they're whistleblowers whether no matter who it happens to, whether it's on uh, the National Institute of, uh, you know, of health, of health, Mm -hmm. uh, whether whomever it is, you know, NIAID, you know, whomever, I think it is very important um, that we have those protections for people to say, whoa, maybe Congress should take a look at this. Maybe my congressman, or maybe this person who's on this committee to take a look at this. This is why we have that stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know for, I mean? you're right, now, there are backstops. Like for instance, we just found out yesterday, HHS, its inspector general just announced that they are going to be investigating this funding and how it got through the Eco Health Alliance and how it got to the Wuhan Institute of Viro- Virology and why it's being spent. And boy, I really hope that that yields facts, of course. And um, I, And that's a good vehicle for that. I'm not objecting to that. I'm just saying that a system that enables those types of things to occur in the first place is one that we should like, you know, we should audit every so often and say, okay, we just have to make sure that when somebody is actually elected to the office, that the people within the career officials within the government can't work to subvert that guy's agenda just because they disagree.
0: Yeah. But I I don't think that that was happening. Again, this, this is the only sticking point that I think where you and I, are a part on, and that is, and and I'm just mainly talking about state. So I'm not talking about, you know, DOD or or all these other things. I do think, um, you know, Trump's relationship with DOD was was an interesting one, and to the Pentagon and all that. But when we're referring to state, they were just like, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen those memes, with um, Ryan Gosling, you know, and it'll be about like asking your wife about what she wants to eat. it's like, tell me what you want, (laughs) Uh you know what I mean? And it's like him in the rain and it's from um, one of those movies that- Uh, The Notebook. Yes, The Notebook. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's
0: it. So, you know, I think a lot of people in, in that, were of course they were frustrated with some of the appointments. Like I already mentioned, Gordon Sondland, who didn't sure. work out for anybody, you know, not even for Trump. Um, you know, other people who just didn't have the experience, who were thrust into uh, positions that they were not ready for, and in a yeah. lot of cases, a lot of the things that bordered on, you know, um, which you know, I think the left wing press went and said, "Oh, this is malfeasance," and a lot of times I'd be like, "No, it's just incompetence." Like This guy just doesn't know what he's doing, you know what I mean? And so I think with with, uh, that situation, there was frustration with that. But when you don't have a clear vision, you know, of of what the goals are. Now, there were a lot of things that Trump and Obama, you know, the Trump administration, in terms of diplomacy and in terms of their uh, addressing Russia, they actually didn't undo a lot of what Obama did. You know what I mean? Which again, I think we act like this is where when we bring on, you know, uh, a Jimmy Dore or a, uh, you know, a Tim Black or mm-hmm. uh, some of the the progressives. And I think they make a very good point. A lot of them will say we met, we act as like there's such a big difference between Obama and Trump. And on an international scale, there really isn't a huge difference between Obama and Trump. A lot of what we're going to talk about are parsing out small details.
1: Yeah, but I think a, that
0: a lot of that was, you know, they had they pretty much did a lot of the same things. Right. But so when the immediate- to, Let me just say this one last point, And that is okay. when, when it came and, it, you know, it's a, it's a repeated point. But when, when it came to, OK, what is your vision for, for, for the State Department? you know, the Trump administration doesn't operate that way because Trump didn't operate that way. He was like, give me a problem, I'll give you an answer. And, you know, I think that that was frustrating for a lot of people and drove a lot of people out, in addition to putting people in charge and in yeah. positions that they were not ready for, rather than looking at some of the career people saying, I'm going to bring my people in.
1: So you know? on on so a couple things here, I, I think that I think you're right that there's, and this probably kind of gets back to somewhat of the administrative state, I think, too. There's like a foreign policy momentum that's hard to break from that even Trump had difficulty breaking from, uh, regardless of whether or not you talk about the Pentagon, the State Department, it kind of is always there and is kind of always insistent. And and there's sometimes Trump would make decisions that he probably wouldn't have made instinctu- instinctually, uh, but that sort of institutional Washington wanted him to do. Um, And bombing Syria may be an example of that, actually, what you what you said before you weren't in favor of it. Trump did it. Um, You know, there was this, you know, I guess one of the breaks with Obama, I I guess it's consistent, but but Trump got tougher on Russia than Obama was Obama under with Hillary Clinton was trying to undergrow that you mentioned earlier, this Russian reset, trying to kind of, you know, play nice with Putin. And that kind of gave Putin an opportunity for some expansionism that he may not have had otherwise. Uh, and so when Trump comes into office, despite the media's character, characterization of Trump, because what, what was happening was there was kind of this, this ongoing and insistent lie that Trump was, had colluded with the Russians to steal the 2016 election. And in order for the media to cover it, what they would do is they would backfill every story to make it seem like this all plays into that narrative. So when so- Trump would say something nice about Putin, that was kind of consistent with Trump being like a bro to everybody. Like Trump, like constantly. He he
0: wasn't a bro to Angela Merkel. No, that's a good
1: point. That's I I, I take that actual
0: allies.
1: (laughs) I take that maybe, and this might get back. You and I had a conversation actually last episode about the way he treats alphas and the way he treats betas. And I have a feeling that actually went into his treatment of other world leaders as well, like people he thinks are weak versus people he thinks are strong. And that includes adversaries um, that we could we could go off on a whole nother psychological tangent on that. But my my only point is that um, the media was looking at his tonal qualities and going, why would he say nice things about Putin? This is clear. It's it's part of his collusion. And and they went off into conspiracy theory land. And um, and in the end, really, I mean, Trump's posture towards Russia was tougher than Obama's shaping up to be tougher right now than Joe Biden's and you know I mean, think about like you had Russian mercenaries in the field in Syria they got too close and and were threatening Americans in the process and Trump with General Mattis as the Secretary of Defense they made a decision to to air bomb Russian mercenaries we were killing Russians in the battlefield during the Trump administration there was nothing gentle about that approach um but it, is, it has been so distorted. The way the press has talked about this issue has so distorted reality that it's actually hard to figure out, like, okay, like what is going on? Like, you know, if you were to ask the average person in Washington, like who's tougher on, on Russia, like, like Trump or Biden? I think by and large, they'd be like, Trump is weak on Russia. Trump was, t- he sucked up to Putin. And it would just be this like, I think this very distorted view of the world that doesn't actually reflect what really occurred.
0: So here, here's the thing. Um I disagree about what? That Trump was was tougher on Russia than Obama. I think it's more, there's a more nuanced conversation about that. Number one, in terms of Russian collusion, I think there's this right-wing thing that, you know, after the um
1: the Mueller report.
0: The Mueller report, excuse me, said we couldn't find evidence of Russian collusion. People are like, no collusion! total exoneration one thing i will say and again i I was somebody from the very beginning you can you can fact check me i I did not believe that to be the case once bob woodward who in my opinion is the greatest journalist of our you know the last 40 50 years said i don't think it's there because i couldn't find it i looked everywhere i couldn't Mm -hmm. find it um however we do know for a fact that Paul Manafort shared internal polling with the Russians. Now, whether you want to call that collusion or not, call it something else. I don't know. I mean, collusion isn't actually a crime. So call it something else. I mean, you could very reasonably argue if the head of your campaign is giving internal polling data to people who work for the other country, that that could be collusion. You know, I know that's become a big political, oh, you know, I can already see the, the keyboard people typing, keyboard warriors typing in there, oh, TDS, this guy's crazy. No, but I- that's all
1: fact. Now, I don't I don't have any objection to being concerned about people's uh, foreign lobbying relationships and whose interests they're serving and who gets money and where they get money from. That's like those are total legitimate lines of inquiry. My only point is that there is no evidence that the Trump campaign, there is no evidence that the Trump campaign conspired with the Russians to steal the 2016 election. And um, that is that's that is a well beaten horse. And yeah, I, um,
0: so Again, I mean, we we I, I honestly the last thing I want to talk about is Russian collusion. Yeah, <laughs> you know I mean, I've gotten enough of Russian collusion. Yeah, me too. Oh, but I, I, you know, again, I think uh, I guess it depends on. It's kind of like the Bill Clinton defined sexual relations. It's that's the same thing with define, you know, Russian collusion.
1: Yes, um, it, it, I, as I, so long as the person that you were having sex with in this analogy. Was in a completely different country, and you've never met them.
0: <laughs> I, now, number one, do you, do you need a direct? Um, you know, it, it the, the idea was there some sort of cons- You know, was there were people conspiring? Right. Uh, with other people, all, all I'm going to say again: Paul Manafort, the head of Trump's campaign, shared internal polling data with the Russians. The Russians, we do know. And this is a fact. The Russians interfered in the 2016 election. That's what came out. And that was the main purpose. That's what they tried to about the Mueller report. That was the primary purpose. Right. They tried to out if Russia meddled in the election. It wasn't about Trump and all of that stuff. That was a byproduct.
1: Well, I mean, the whole reason. The whole reason it became a Mueller investigation, though, is because Trump fired James Comey, Rod Rosenstein panicked, and then he appointed Robert Mueller uh, to conduct a special counsel investigation into all of this. And, and, and again, the end result, as you rightly noted, is that the, the, the Mueller report was in two parts. The first part indicating that he couldn't find uh, evidence of collusion between Americans and Russians to subvert the election. And the second part was then to accuse Trump um of a variety of process crime crimes for his adamant denials and um and then of course that's you know that was basically the story of the Trump presidency at least in for the mainstream press and i, I don't know i mean yeah. in retrospect my views on this is yeah, correct, do I I, I, I think thought this that, was, that Donald Trump master.
0: was you know secretly meeting with Vladimir Putin in some dark shadowy area you know at the legion of doom <laughs> and and saying hey Hack Dominion voting systems? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. No, I don't think that. But was there some relationship between the Trump campaign and some people in Russia? Um, <laughs> I think that that is abs- some people in Russia who who have power, oligarchs, and people who have relationships with the power structure in Russia. That's fact. There's there's no way around that. So again, um. You know, I, I don't want to talk Russian collusion, but No, I, I know that's but... so 2018. But, <laughs> you know, and it's 2021, we have a new president. But what I will say is that the reason people can certainly argue, and I would be one of them, that Trump was not any tougher on Obama, uh, excuse me, on, on Russia than Obama, was because he failed to address something that we're all concerned about, and he downplayed it, which was election meddling. Which we all know happened.
1: Yeah. The, the question on election meddling was like, what extent did it actually do anything? Like, for instance, we like one if you polled Democrats, if you polled Democrat voters, maybe even right now, at one point, like a huge number of Democrats thought that the that Russians had actually changed votes in the 2016 election. I was like I mean, that Republicans
0: a, think that people changed votes in the twenty twenty
1: election. There's, in other, None other words like, that has happened. In other words, like people are t- are deeply misled, and so it's so. But that served as the basis for a lot of the um, conspiracy mongering around Russia over the last four years. It's like they changed votes. No, actually, if you look at what they did, like the way they had an infl- influence in the election, is they did what is um, what they've typically tried to do throughout history. Which is to try and have some influence over emotionality in the United States. You and I have Absolutely. talked about this, where you basically they invested some couple ten thousand dollars into Facebook to buy advertisements both for and against Donald Trump, to get people to go to Black Lives Matter rallies, like basically anything that's politically sensitive in the United States, they were Mostly trying to for.
0: Uh, it wasn't a whole lot of against. They did a okay. Whole no, lot no,
1: of- that's that's true, but I don't we don't need to quantify it. That I think that that gives yeah. you a sense that literally they they, they were interested in chaos. That's, that's a good sign that they were interested in chaos in the United States for sure. But I just, we, we spent a lot of time on that issue for, for many years now, for the entire duration of the Trump presidency, without anybody ever giving us a meaningful sense of scale. Like it, it does it deserve this much of our attention or should we just be saying to the government, Hey, make sure you do what you can to prevent, um, Uh, foreign powers from meddling in our activities, including influence campaigns in the United States. Um, So I I do have to say before we, before we conclude here today, because I I think you and I've had a good conversation that the framework you just laid out though, where you're like wondering, you know, Hey, who within this orbit in the Trump campaign orbit specifically has relationship with a relationship with people who have power in Russia. I mean, That is the exact framework by which we should be looking at the Hunter Biden story, don't you think? I mean, like, if you've got Hunter being paid awesome money, by the way, I would kill for some of that Hunter money by these foreign governments. And then he's got business partners who say outright that like, hey, Joe sat in on some of these meetings. He met the business partners. He was definitely there on the record guy, Tony Bobulinski saying all this. I mean, don't you think some of that deserves like at least the, a little bit of scrutiny from the American press that says, OK, to what extent is the president's family financially entangled in foreign business interests of any kind? Is that a worthwhile uh, line of inquiry to you? I think
0: that's that's been investigated. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just hasn't it hasn't turned anything uh, significant up. And I think if, if it were bigger. Uh, a lot of the mainstream right-wing press would be all over it to this very day. The other thing is, I just want to really quickly say about Hunter Biden. Yeah. He brought it up. Um, a joke that I made on Twitter that did not get, it's just you. i It should have been, gotten a lot more appreciation. And I just- right, lay
1: it on it. me. Lay it on me.
0: So um, I don't know if you saw the tweet by Mike Pompeo, who said- I want all you proud Americans to join me in becoming pipe hitters.
1: Oh yeah. Pipe hitters. Yeah. Yeah. I saw yeah. that. Uh-huh. So I
0: said, I retweeted it and I said, well, uh, Mike Lindell and Hunter Biden will definitely join that call because they love hitting the pipe. <laughs> that was funny. Like, that's, come on. That, that's, that's
1: cold. That's cold, Jason. Yeah, I thought you were—I thought you were supposed to be like the empathetic liberal on this show. That—that's cold, man. Um,
0: it was—it was a joke, and judging by Hunter Biden's uh, Hunter Biden's sense of humor, based on his tweets, I think he would appreciate it.
1: You know, he is wait. A wait, does Hunter have a Twitter account? I didn't realize that. Not story. not
0: Twitter. Um, oh, he was texting. He was oh, his texting text on his uh, with his lawyer or something like that. He said the N word and all that, and then oh, yeah. um, you know, of course, Mike Lindell is Very open about the fact that he was hitting the
1: pipe, yeah. You know, he has I, I a whole book on he, it. He wrote a book about how he got out of it,
0: yeah. I, I, I don't think he, you know, I mean, he might not appreciate the joke as much as Hunter Biden,
1: probably but, not,
0: <laughs> but I still think that, you know, come on, that should have gotten lots of retweets, uh huh. Uh,
1: you know, I don't, you see, you know, the problem, you know, what the problem was with that joke that it was bipartisan, like, it's exactly right. It's because, because you mentioned two figures that are like either like cherished or you're not or, or or uncomfortable to like both sides of the aisle that um nobody wanted to engage it that's what twitter oh, that's is i mean that's so like rag.
0: is that where we are we can't appreciate a funny joke just because it's you know it's it's a bipartisan funny joke and i don't know anybody if you are a left-wing person i don't know anybody who's like yo hunter biden is my man you know what I mean like I love Hunter Biden
1: no he's just embarrassed I mean if I had to like he's put my, my yeah. like yeah even Hunter Biden would be like yeah I'm an embarrassment
0: I'm working on it. you know what I mean like right
1: you know and
0: you know I, trust me I have lots of empathy for people uh who no are- I'm teasing
1: you I know you don't even have to throw clear on this I know you do I that was yeah. a good joke and you deserve more for it but I deserve Twitter's- more Twitter is nuts, and uh, everyone's in their corners. And, you know, I don't know. Step out in the middle occasionally like we do right here on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. That's what we got We got for you on a Wednesday as uh, Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden stare each other down. Vince and Jason try to make sense of all of it. Uh, please subscribe, uh, if you will, to this here show, either on YouTube. You can like and subscribe and add a comment. I think that's how you convince YouTube to show a lot of other people the show. So that would be very helpful. And then also- um, say that again
0: i saw i saw you do a white power symbol
1: They're gonna... oh, yeah i was that was actually <laughs> like so i was like that be but well, perfect if you did that um yeah you're italian yeah also, i just got i is that is that's the trick though i gotta keep all the fingers down now yeah
0: you gotta keep the fingers down. you know i've like found out. that
1: first of all i i still hold that, maintain that that's a deeply stupid thing and i'm not allowing either white supremacists or um or people who make that out to be a white supremacist symbol to steal a perfectly good hand gesture from the rest of us. Like the, you guys can go fight it out. I'm doing okay still. But at the same time, I remember, I don't know about you, but like, I remember being a child and being told by my parents that, you know, the middle finger needs to stay down on your hand. It can't go up because, you know, it means something that you don't realize what it means. When I was, when I was a kid, I was told it was just the worst word you could possibly imagine. That's what your middle finger means. So I was like, wow. I was upset. I was visibly upset. I was like, "Who could steal my ability to raise a limb?" <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't like. How do they have this much control over me that I'm not even allowed to raise a single digit into the air? Um, yeah. So, so when people oh. try and steal other hand gestures from me, Jason, I'm I'm against it, man.
0: <laughs> I will say this: like symbols can be co-opted and made to be negative. Um, if you're someone who's a Hindu you know the swastika doesn't you know doesn't mean what it means that's you know what i, what I heard. Mean? but it's been perverted um, <laughs> by nazism and so there are times where we have to trash a symbol unfortunately because just like when you know if if you have something that's really good you know like you got some food and someone poops on it you know, you're not going to still eat it and be like, this is my cake. You know, you're going to be like, eh, I'm going to throw this cake away. <laughs> you know, so uh, I think there are times when we get rid of symbols. Um,
1: but you're not ready to retire the okay hand gesture. I'm not ready
0: to retire the, <laughs> the okay symbol. But I also will. It is useful. It. It's
1: very useful. If you're looking across the room and it's like, do you, do you want this? And you're like,
0: Yeah, no, I, I still do it. <laughs> um, but I also recognize sometimes when others use it, I, you know, my antennas go up like, <laughs> um, wow, uh, the, the life
1: is too much man not,
0: not with not with Vince Colonnese no.
1: um,
0: you know I will speak to him as his you know speak for him as his one black friend you know as Republican, the one Republican yeah dude. They love to point out the one black friend. I'm the one black friend of uh of Vince Colony.
1: Actually, that's the whole point of this show. I've been running. You ha- You should see how I use it. Like everywhere I go. I'm like, I actually have a black friend right here on YouTube. You can see him. Look, it's us <laughs> together. I mean, we're not in the same room. Let's not get crazy. But we, there is two of us together on the same screen. Yeah. Uh,
0: and, and you can't possibly be racist if you, if you know a black guy. So we all <laughs> know that. Um but thank you all for for watching. I know Vince already said it he was closing it out and I interrupted him because we both not only want to save the nation we want to save the nation's symbols including <laughs> the OK symbol. That's right. I instead as- of
1: <laughs> instead of ending the show we took a very dangerous detour into flirting with in flirting with identitarian symbols. So thank you yeah. for that. That was great. Right.
0: And, and I'll just say this, you're saving that symbol. Uh I say that if you are not a white nationalist, it's okay. Thank you. Uh, And I have my black card in my pocket somewhere. I am officially black, work in African-American studies.
1: Incredible. Um, I wondered, honestly, I didn't know, but I'm glad you have the card.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have a black card, but I don't have a race card. You know what I mean? Like people (laughs) accuse me of throwing out this race card. I'm like, where is it? I can't find it. Maybe I threw it out and somebody took it. but I do have a black card, and you know uh, that gets me into a lot of black circles. So um, you can, you know, keep this symbol. You know, throw it upside down.
1: <laughs> Jason, Just I think the point's this, been. I think yeah. the point's been made at this point.
0: <laughs> yeah, but we uh, we love you. Yeah, amen. You know, and I'm going to give you a symbol that I think is universally uh, okay, and that mm-hmm. is this. Uh, although I think it may be a MAGA symbol now because doesn't Trump do this a lot?
1: Yeah, that's right. We can make every every human gesture noxious. Let's let's destroy all human contact over the course of the next few episodes. Is it
0: me, and really quickly? Is it me, or does Trump have a weird looking thumb? Like, yeah, it, he's got
1: goes- his his thumb. I think his thumb. I don't know. I have a weird thumb. My it's thumb like kind a, of bows out. Bows yeah, out. Yeah,
0: like I, I've got the straight up and down thumb. My thumb is mm-hmm. straight, but mm-hmm. he's got some sort of weird thing going with his thumb where it's like. But anyway. Um, <laughs> In, in, you know, just like this, click that down below. That's a like symbol. We will take likes. We like likes. Uh, even click one of these. We don't really, you know, that won't hurt our feelings either. Yeah. Definitely engage with us, comment. Uh, and, you know, we enjoy having you guys with us on Vince and Jason Safe Nation. Yeah. I'm Jason Nichols. That's Vince Colonnais, or I guess maybe that's Vince Colonnais, we're there. Either way, and, um, Vince Colanese is here. I'm here. We like you. You like us.
1: And honestly, if you're still watching this right now, if like if you've made it this far, uh, chances are you're probably already subscribed. So sorry about that.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. All right, guys, take it easy. See ya.